Welcome to episode 28 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. And it's International Women's Day this Monday. And to celebrate, the Royal Opera House is staging two really interesting free digital events. On Monday at seven o'clock in the evening, on its YouTube channel, you can see the chief theatre critic of The Guardian, Arifa Akbar, chairing a panel that's going to be looking at what's next for women in the creative industries. On the panel will be Indu Rubassingham, director of the Kiln Theatre, recently a guest on this podcast, of course, Francis Morris, director of Tate Modern, the operati soprano Pretty Yendi, and Paula Constable, award-winning lighting designer for opera, theatre and dance. It's quite a lineup, and they'll be talking about their personal experiences in the creative industries and how they can affect change. So well worth tuning into. Also on Monday, but at six on the Royal Opera House Instagram channel, no less, the American choreographer Pam Tanovitz will be in conversation with the Royal Ballet's first soloist, Beatrice Dix Brunnell, exploring female choreography in the 21st century and female role models in the dance world. Our listeners will know I love ballet, so I'll definitely be tuning in for that. What listeners might not know is that I'm also a major fan of the Financial Times, and in particular, FT Weekend, which is my Saturday morning fix. In <laughs> fact, I think it's a bit of a cult because I started to make friends with people who are also as obsessed as I am about the FT Weekend. It's like my Saturday morning ritual. So I'm very excited about the FT Weekend Digital Spring Festival. I suppose we're we're really plugging a rival because obviously Country and Townhouse and the FT go toe-to-toe on matters cultural, but it's starting on the 18th of March. And as you might expect, because it's the FT and the FT Weekend, it's been able to gather over 100 pretty formidable speakers, ranging from Diane von Furstenberg to Mark Carney, who incidentally refuses to come on my other podcast, but that's another story. There's also going to be a live performance by the London Symphony Orchestra, streamed from the LSO's St. Luke's and conducted by the sadly soon-to-be-departing Simon Rattle on the first evening of the festival. So there's lots and lots to hear and see and experience. And to tell us more about what's on offer is the FT Arts Editor, Jan Daly. Good morning, Jan. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Jan. And we're delighted to have you here to navigate our listeners through these very rich pickings. And I think what's so exciting about this festival is that it's quite unashamedly highbrow. You said yourself, we're not afraid to be brainy. And as a result, you've attracted the most phenomenal minds to come and talk. So start by giving our listeners some of the headline events. Well, you mentioned Mark Carney, so let's start there. So as as I'm sure listeners will know, he's now the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action. And He's talking to the FT's Gillian Tett, who now runs a newsletter within the FT, which is called Moral Money. And uh, that's all about environmental, social investing and how basically how finance can save the planet. So the two of them together, it should be pretty dynamic, those two. To look at something completely different, as you say, we've got wonderful Sir Simon Rattle conducting his his orchestra, as you say, soon not to be his orchestra anymore, but he's he's still with us for another year or two, I think. And he's going to also be talking to me about, really about the crisis in British music that is caused, it's really a, a horrible double whammy between the pandemic and Brexit. And he feels very strongly about Brexit, as, as many of us already know. And he's being uh, joined by um, a completely different musician from a different world, who's Laura Marling, who's the wonderful singer-songwriter who you might know. And then superstar, we have Yuval Harari. Oh, yes. 
who wrote really, a brilliant piece in the FT Weekend, just gone. He did. He did. Well, he did one for us a year ago about when when we were just at the beginning of this thing, this pan, this pandemic year, in which he actually predicted quite a lot of what has in fact happened. So this is a kind of year on piece and both of them are fantastic. Both can be found online, of course. The main, we call it the FT interview. It's a kind of one big one. Um, in the last last year I did it with Julian Barnes. This time it's some wonderful writer, Chimamanda Adichie. We've got the vaccine visionaries as we're calling them, the amazing pair of scientists behind the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine. What else can I tell you? Well, as you say, style, novelists, cooks, gardeners, people making cocktails. Um, <laughs> very important. <laughs> yes, very important. People telling us how we should be running if we want to run. So as you see, it really it runs the gamut, if I could say that, from the brainiest and most cerebral to practical, fun, stylish lifestyle. In fact, it's it's really what you're obsessed with, Ed, because it's the whole lot of what happens in the FT weekend every week. I am a massive cliche because I've uh, I obviously love the arts and I've taken up running so this is sort of designed for me. Oh good <laughs> well that's brilliant. Another thing possibly to tell everybody about is that it's readers chance to meet sadly only online this time but to meet a lot of their favorite writers. So if you love Tim Harford the undercover economist or if you love the wonderful, hilarious Claire Barrett, or you know, very grand, the grandees Martin Wolf, or the brilliant Joe Ellison, any of these people, Jancis Robinson with her wine, they're all available. So, can can you just tell us a bit more about Simon Rattle? Because um, I think you're going to be talking to him about the fact that the great plans for the new music hall are not going to be happening now. Yes, I certainly will be asking him whether it's a contributory factor to his decision to base his life in Germany. I think that he has quite publicly already expressed his disappointment, shall I say. Oh, I think they're definitely linked. I was the minister when uh, the plans of, were first mooted and it was definitely part of the deal for Simon to come over to London that uh, this great musical was going to be built. And it's very depressing that it's not uh, going ahead, but I suspect it's partly a, a side effect of COVID. But let's talk a bit about the FT, because you're right, uh, all the writers are cult figures. I mean, I'm a big fan of Janan Ganesh. I worship Lucy Kellaway and Joe Ellison. I was at university with half the FT writers, which is pretty, you know, Alec Russell was at university with me, and we occasionally bump into each other in Ravenscourt Park. Camilla Cavendish and I shared tutorials with. Uh, Norman Stone, but given the pandemic and given you're all working from home like the rest of us, I mean, what is the FT? Are you normally, is it like some amazing fan de siècle Parisian salon when you're all physically in the building? Yes, Ed, it's exactly like <laughs> salon. We, we have um, we have these amazing velvet chaise longues. I knew it. I and, knew it. And, and the cocktails start at 10 in the morning. No, look, it's a, it's a newspaper office. You know what they look like. They're grubby. They're absolutely chaotic. Do you have a sort of cult of readers? Uh, do you have a, a kind of bulging post bag of people who constantly sort of email in? And... It's a pretty big cult these days, given that we've got more than a million online subscribers. That's quite a sizable cult. It's pretty impressive. I think this the point to make about the FT, which a lot of people don't realise, is how many of our readers are not 
in the UK. Very, very large number are across the world. And, and what you find is that people are reading the FT for all kinds of reasons. I mean, we've been talking about the weekend, but of course the, the million figure is right across the six days of the FT. And while there are an awful lot of people who read the weekend but don't read Monday to Friday, there are also a lot of people who do the other thing. They read Monday to Friday, probably for work, but don't read the weekend. Yeah. So so there are a very, very large number of people. And just tell us a bit more about what Chimamanda is going to be talking about, because that's a really interesting uh, headline talk, isn't it? She's entitled her talk or her, her interview, as it would be, writing in a time of cultural conflict. So I think she will probably be writing about, sorry, talking about that whole that whole project, really, which is presumably the, the project of her writing life. One of the great things about these interviews is that you never quite know what's going to come out, which is why uh, this is why they're live and why they're lively. Um, and by the way, the audience can put in questions. And good thing about having it online, we were terribly sad in September when we had to have our first one online. We couldn't do it in the lovely Hampstead surroundings. But actually, there are a few advantages, and one of them is much wider audience, of course. And another is that people can put in questions on screen all the time. And so if, like, say it's me and I'm moderating, I can be reading those questions and seeing what the audience is thinking and get a better kind of interaction and sort of feedback isn't that quite difficult, though, because sometimes those questions come in so thick and fast that for you to be reading those and trying to listen to what whoever you're talking to is saying is almost impossible. Yes, but we're very clever. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> no, no, what, 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 I, what I actually, Charlotte, what I find distracting is that quite soon the questioners, so-called, actually start talking to each other. Yes, I've seen that happen. Yes, <laughs> they do. So they're arguing with each other. So there's another conversation going on, which and that is easy to get distracted by that. Yeah, but I think we're all learning, aren't we, about all this? You know, our, our lives are digital now because they have to be, and so we're all learning how this goes and the things we have to do. All sorts of new skills. So, listeners, get your tickets now. It's on. Uh, starts on March the eighteenth, doesn't it? It does. You can book your passes. Just just Google it. You'll find it. It's easy enough. And a pass gives you access to absolutely everything across all the three days. But because you can't possibly sit there hour after hour listening solidly, or well, you possibly could, but um, you'd be. Um, Ed probably can. Uh, oh, uh, I, was, I was about to say, I'll, I'll do that. You'll do that. All right. Well, if you don't feel like joining Ed, you can still log in later and hear the hear the talks. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. We're very much looking forward to it. Well, thank Indeed. you so much for inviting me. Before we move on, the really good news is that listeners can receive a £5 discount off their festival pass if they use the code FTWEEKENDFESTIVAL at the checkout. So many thanks to the FT for that, and I'm hugely looking forward to it. Still on the subject of great minds, we're thrilled to have with us one of today's most exciting writers, who's fast becoming the most talked about literary figure of the moment. His 2016 A Very English Scandal about Jeremy Thorpe was adapted by Russell T Davis into the BAFTA-winning BBC series, starring Hugh Grant as Jeremy Thorpe and Ben Whishaw as Norman Scott. And this year, his 2007 novel, The Dig, about finding the treasure at Sutton Hoo has been adapted into a movie with Rafe Fiennes, 
Kerry Mulligan and Lily James on Netflix. And now he's written the most talked about book of the year, Fall, about the life of the media tycoon Robert Maxwell. He is John Preston, and we're delighted to welcome him onto our podcast. Good morning, John. Good morning. John, good morning. And wow, what a read. I can Thank honestly you very much. say, well, no, honestly, it, I've never read a biography that I've been so gripped by. And every <laughs> time Ed and I have talked over the last week, we've banged on about it. And we haven't been able to put it down. I and mean, it's just so rich with detail and research, but never overwhelmed by it. And deservedly, it's garnered praise and rave reviews from oh every quarter. Now, I know we've both got millions of questions we're dying to ask you. So I'm going to get going straight away. What first made you want to undertake this enormous project? After A Very English Scandal came out, or once it had been made, I, I had a lunch with the producer and we were vaguely kind of batting around ideas for A, a Very English Scandal too. And I think he mentioned Maxwell and I said, no, no, I think it's a terrible idea. And then I went <laughs> home and I thought about it. And I thought, no, 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 wait a minute. It's actually not a terrible idea. It's a very good idea. And I was at school with Ian Maxwell, and I've known him, you know, off and on ever since. And we had a drink, and I talked to him about it and asked him how he felt. He was kind of wary, but not entirely opposed to the idea. So it really just kind of went on from there. And I'd always been fascinated by Maxwell because he'd kind of been this inescapable presence on Fleet Street in the late 80s. And he seemed to be kind of feared and held in awe in roughly equal measure, often by the same people, it seemed to me. What a lot of people who knew him had in common is that they'd boast about how they stood up to him. But in reality, mm. they'd all just absolutely sort of genuflected and been incredibly sycophantic. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, well, I, th I think most, most people did adopt an extremely servile crouch whenever they were in <laughs> Maxwell's presence. Not entirely surprising. I mean, he was a very intimidating figure. But then, yes, you're, you're, <laughs> they would then go back, then, uh, you know, uh, regale people with stories about how they'd fearlessly stood their ground. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is interesting. It's sort of, in a sense, there's a sort of link with the thought book, because I think the undercurrent of Fall and indeed the thought book is about how just ghastly and venal the British establishment is. <laughs> and that these people are sort of lauded and praised, even though people know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. And then people run for the hills the minute um, there's a reckoning. I think it was Alan Bennett who said that the recent past is the most boring period of all. But then you kind of go back a bit further and it tilts over an indefinable point where it becomes history. And then it does become interesting, particularly if there's a kind of dramatic contrast between the way that we lived then and the way we live now. And with the thought book, the big difference between then and now was, you know, attitudes to homosexuality. And with the Maxwell book, in a way, it's about the way in which power was exercised then and is exercised now, because that has changed a lot. In, huh. what, in what way has it changed? Yes. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, you, you still have very rich people wielding enormous power, but it tends to be done... Uh, in a much more kind of behind the arras type way. I mean, you know, a lot of 
Silicon Valley billionaires are to some extent political figures, but they're not uh, out and out power brokers in the way that Maxwell was and Rupert Murdoch was and of course still is. You know, it's interesting that because Murdoch is a sort of theme through the book as well. And I noticed that um, your bibliography is sort of half books and half face-to-face, as it were, interviews. They may have been Zoom interviews. And Murdoch is one of the people you interview. I mean, you interview quite a lot of people who were involved in the story. And I was intrigued that Murdoch, for example, was very happy to talk to you. Tell us about that. I ended up going to see him in New York. And he was very friendly, very forthcoming. You know, in a way, you know, he unquestionably won the battle against Maxwell. So it was an unalloyed triumph as far as he was concerned. You know, with Maxwell, you sort of half, you're half on his side reading the book you know you want him to kind of succeed and you sort of there are parts uh of the book when you're reading it when you rather admire him and you do kind of take his side of you know he's the outsider trying to break in did you find yourself sort of torn between being a maxwell fan and a maxwell sort of holding to account yes i did in a way i mean i felt that one of the reasons i wanted to do the book was because you know 30 years have elapsed since he died and he's still regarded really as the kind of embodiment of corporate villainy and it seemed that so much as it were black paint had been tipped over his head that he'd been turned into this kind of pantomime villain and he seemed a much more nuanced complex to some extent tortured figure uh, than that and those are the bits that I wanted to get at I suppose. I was really intrigued by effectively your conclusion that Robert Maxwell kick-started you know, British scientific research after the war, which is a great uh, kind of one-liner to trot out at a dinner party. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And let's just say hypothetically that Maxwell had died in 1961. He would probably have been revered as, you know, the greatest scientific publisher in the world and the man who actually paved the way for a lot of key um, breakthroughs in physics, biology, you know, uh, chemistry. And of course, it's very easy to say the only reason he got involved was because he could see it was a potentially colossal cash cow. And, you know, there's some truth in that. But it's very interesting that the scientists absolutely revered Maxwell and, and very much saw him as, as one of their own, you know, somebody who was fantastically interested and had an astonishing capacity for grasping very complex arguments very quickly. So I think that um, simply to see him as, as someone driven solely by expediency is just not right. But talking about road, roads to riches, you, you very cleverly ensured that all your books are being made into films <laughs> or TV series. <laughs> now, The Dig was, I suppose, the, the oddest one because my aunt, found the first gold that was discovered at Sutton, oh, which yes, is really wh- why I wrote the book. And so it's, I think, certainly the most personal book that I've written. And I'm going on to this set of very English scandal. And I remember seeing Hugh Grant in full makeup with his kind of Jeremy Thorpe comb over and his double-breasted waistcoat that Thorpe always used to wear. And it was... Absolutely extraordinary because, you know, Hugh Grant basically doesn't look anything like Jeremy Thorpe, but it was as if <laughs> Thorpe had been kind of reincarnated in front of my eyes. He was brilliant in that, wasn't he? Yeah, he was one of the best things I've brilliant. ever seen Hugh Grant do. Yeah. Absolutely superb, yeah. Mm. I mean, the Sutton Who thing is uh, is tremendous. I mean, it's been a massive success on Netflix. I'm obsessed by Sutton Who because it 
cost me my it cost me my first class degree from Oxford. Did it? Why? Because I got enough marks to get a first, except in the general paper, in which I got a gamma. Because I went, <laughs> oh dear. It, it, this, was, this was this was history. I went into the general paper, and I decided to answer. There are four questions. I decided to ask, answer each question. It's historiography. Each question by referencing Sutton Hoo. So each essay was about <laughs> Sutton Hoo, about which I am absolutely obsessed by Sutton Hoo because I love archaeology. And it comes across actually in the film. I haven't actually read the book. It comes across very much in the film, this connection with the past, this idea that you're digging down and discovering something that hasn't been seen for 3,000 years and you have this almost instantaneous, it's like a t- time machine, this communing with the spirit of the king that has been buried there. I mean, have you? do you have the same feeling about Sutton who partly because your family was involved? Yes, definitely. I mean, if you go to, if you go to Sutton who in the, in the visitor center, uh, as far as I remember, you can pick up a kind of old Bakelite phone or a kind of, you know, modern imitation of an old Bakelite phone and hear my aunt talking in, astonishingly cut glass tones. I mean, she yes, I was about to say. Kind of common um, <laughs> about how, <laughs> you know, it was extraordinary to find the remains of this lost civilization at a time when their own civilization looked as if it was about to be blown to smithereens because the, uh, the discovery was made in the summer of 1939. Of course, yes. And that, that, that kind of, I, that fix, I was, became fixated on that. And that, as you, that did seem like a kind of trapdoor springing open into the past. Can we just go back to Fool for a minute? Because mm. um, I was really intrigued by the figure of Maxwell's incredibly long-suffering wife, Betty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God knows how you got access to all those personal letters and everything. She'd written an autobiography about two or three years after Maxwell died weirdly published by Rupert Murdoch, or by Murdoch's company. And because Maxwell's name was so blackened by then, I don't think very many people bought the book. But it actually, it's an astonishing book. And it's very, very frank about, you know, this marriage which started off with enormous kind of passion and romance and tenderness, um, fell apart at the seams to her kind of utter bafflement, really. And she, and she rather kind of poignantly casts around for explanations as to why Maxwell turned against her so violently, not in in terms of physical violence, but emotional violence. He would kind of belittle her in front of other people. And indeed, it was a subject that was brought up at her funeral by the man who gave the address. And and she sort of lit upon this explanation which is that when Maxwell rediscovered his Judaism very late in the day, in the mid-80s, having always denied being Jewish, he blamed her for not being Jewish and kind of took it out on her. It doesn't entirely hold water as far as I'm concerned, Um, but I think it's kind of revealing that it's the explanation that she hit upon. But she stuck by him through thick and thin, and there's one incredible letter she sends him, which you quote from, where she says, you know, I don't care what I give up, I'll give up absolutely everything, but not you. Why do you think that was? I mean, she just never left him. I think she did adore him and 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 venerated him. I think she had quite an old-fashioned idea of marriage, so um, she wasn't particularly bothered about his kind of periodic 
flings. I mean, old-fashioned French idea of marriage, I should say. But when he starts spending more and more time abroad and when he's more and more kind of brusque and offhand with her and the children, she very much saw it as her duty to try to keep the family together, to keep this kind of semblance of normality going. I mean, I agree with Charlotte. I was intrigued. I mean, she writes so eloquently and it's, yes. uh, it made me want to read her autobiography. I, mean, I, she's I agree. She's a powerful, powerful personality and I think an extremely sort of dignified woman, although there may be people listening to this who think, well, you know, she was complicit and it's outrageous, but well, I don't think she was remotely. Remarkable. Yeah, I don't think she was remotely complicit on it. I mean, because basically she and Maxwell were barely talking by then, let alone colluding in anything. But yes, I think she was a remarkable woman. How do you explain all these other women who seem to be really quite violently attracted to him? I, th- I find that extraordinary. I mean, having obviously, you know, I've never met him, but he obviously did have this real magnetism that's beyond just the normal cliches about, oh, power and wealth. Yes, he did. And I mean, you know, he was also, as a young man, extremely good looking. You know, he was a really (laughs) very um, slim, handsome, virile looking man. Then, of course, you know, he does fill out dramatically as he gets older. But he still was one of those people who could kind of dominate any room he walked into. He really was extremely charismatic. And there was some kind of rather kind of dark, baleful allure that he had. So, uh, John, what's the family's reaction been to the book? The shorter answer is I don't really know. I think that Ian made it pretty clear that he doesn't like the book. I think that Ian probably did want something that was more laudatory. And I and I remember saying to him when we first met, you know, I can't I can't really try to change people's perceptions of your father in terms of what he did, but I I do want to try and humanize him. So I I do hope that that people might see Maxwell in a slightly more sympathetic light as a result of reading my book. Did anybody actually like him. I'm just wondering about that young valet that yes. he had, who he did seem, who actually was yeah. the one person who did seem to stand up to him a little bit. He did st- He did stand up to him and he actually was extremely fond of Maxwell. But Maxwell really lacked any capacity for friendship with anyone who was on vaguely equal footing with him. I mean, he's had a kind of, had a kind of friendship with Gerald Ronson, but most of the time he kind of felt, I think he had to sort of lock horns in a very adversarial way with anybody. It's a wonderful scene with the, with the man who dyes his hair when he says, I am your only friend to him. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know, having got enormous wealth at one stage and, you know, power and influence, he ends up you know, alone in his apartment on the top of his headquarters, inevitably named Maxwell House. Uh, No friends, stuffing himself with Chinese takeaways and, you know, um, watching old Clint Eastwood movies. You know, it's a really pretty sad portrait. I love the twist at the end of the book. I just found that completely unbelievable as the last paragraph. I mean, absolute stroke of genius. Tell tell the listeners about that. I mean, Maxwell and Rupert Murdoch were kind of locked together in this sort of titanic battle for almost 30 years. And as I said before, you know, it was a battle in which Murdoch essentially won every round. As far as Murdoch was concerned, Maxwell was just this kind of 
perpetual irritant that he could never quite manage to brush off. But as far as Maxwell was concerned, Murdoch really turned into this nemesis. And in trying to match Murdoch to to prove that he belonged in the same arena as Murdoch, he you know he he definitely he set in train a chain of events which led to his kind of downfall, his mental and physical disintegration, and ultimately his death. And it one of the things that drove Murdoch nuts was that their names were constantly being mentioned in the same breath. And the fact they shared the same initials made it even worse for him. And when I went to see him in New York, he, I was just kind of getting up to go. And he said, ah, uh, oh, you know, a really strange thing happened, um, you know, about a few years after uh, Maxwell died. Is that Murdoch's former wife, Anna, was looking to buy a yacht. So she ends up buying this yacht called the Lady Mona Kay. And it's only, I think, several months afterwards that they discover that it was the Lady Ghislaine, Maxwell's yacht, and has been <laughs> renamed since his death. And it just, to me, it was just such an extraordinary illustration of how their fates were entwined. Yeah, I mean, almost subliminally, it's absolutely brilliant ending. It's just, you you know, you I did. sort of let out a yelp. <laughs> what? <laughs> Well, we can see that as the last scene in the eight-part yes. working title Netflix yes. <laughs> blockbuster that pays for the um, small country mansion that um, yes. the hottest writer Bring it on. since Robert Harris uh, <laughs> gets. Um, brilliant. John, thank you so much. Really enjoyed talking to Pleasure. you. Pleasure. Anyone listening, you have to buy fall. Thank you so much, John. Pleasure. Very sad is I could have gone on chatting forever. That's all we've got time for this week. But you know where we are if you want to check out our other podcasts. We're at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. And if you want to listen to Carol Annette's brilliant podcast, House Guests, about interior design, that's where to go as well. You'll also find the Great British Brands podcast there in collaboration with Michael Heyman of Changemakers. And this week, Michael's talking to Chris Holliman and Chris Hutchin from the super cool outdoor clothing brand, Musto. And if you want to subscribe to our newsletters, just add forward slash newsletter to our web address and you'll find all the weekly news from Country and Townhouse, which I know Ed's a great fan of, and this month's newsletter from me at Great British Brands, which focuses on food, drink and tea with Chef Asma Khan's great piece on the huge unifying role food has to play in our lives. We hope you enjoyed today as much as we did and do read Fall. It really is just the most fantastic read. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.